We're going to start off uh, today with a video. Let's watch this together. The hardest part of my struggle was accepting the fact that I had a traumatic brain injury and permanent spinal cord damage. And without God's healing touch, I am never going to get better. My diagnosis is pain for the rest of my life. Chastity Bird, and this is my story. Seven years ago, I was an incident that caused a lifetime of chronic pain. I had just finished my master's degree and had an incredible job. Once the migraines had gotten worse and I started losing the use of my right arm, I had a mental breakdown and walked out of my job. This caused my family to lose everything financially, including our home. I became very depressed, sleeping for the first year and many days since then. I was so mad and in so much pain and mentally numb to my family. Migraines and chronic pain can lead you to some very dark places in life. I have wanted to commit suicide on several different occasions. I talked to my husband Jeff about it and told him that I thought it would be easier on my family if I just went on because my medical bills were so much. And he told me that he could face anything if I would just stay. So I've stayed. Although I could have never seen what was going to happen to me seven years ago, God has been planning this for years. He placed people in my life that gave me a reason to live. He gave me this amazing husband that works 10 hours a day, comes home, helps with the house, helps with the cooking, plays with the kids, helps with their homework. All of this when I'm not feeling well to do it. I have two wonderful kids that also do and help around with the house. I have two amazing parents. But most importantly, I have this loving God, this wonderful God, this patient God, this God that I can talk to any time, night or day, no matter how bad it gets. A God that has not given up on me even when I've wanted to give up on myself. He has taught me so many lessons through all of this. He has drawn me closer and closer, and He has shown me where I wanted to spend the rest of my life. God has shown me the important things of life. It is not about fancy cars. It is not about huge houses. It's not about extreme vacations. It is about showing others about God's love. It's about 
showing love to as many people as you possibly can. Have you ever thought of your money that way? Most people don't. However, when you use your money to help those around you, those that need that outstretched hand, you are showing God's love in one of the greatest ways possible. You see, my dreams have changed since all this happened. Used to, my dreams was how far my career was going to take me. Now my dreams is that I can just stay well enough to help others. I want to get well enough to be a foster mom and to take kids in. to heal me physically. I may even continue to get worse as I have been doing every day. But I know I am going to spend eternity in the arms of the most loving God. And I am going to do that in the healed, perfect body that He gives me. And that is why I live from minute to minute so I can be with him. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with us, Chastity. I need a volunteer, preferably a not smaller, feebler, frail male. Yes. Stand on up here, if you don't mind. Actually, you can stand on that. Right there. That's good. Yes. That right there. Yes. Turn around. There we go. I've been working out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling good today, Scott. Okay, good. That's actually sort of what we need. You're not going to jump on my back. No, I, I, I am... I am going to, you know, test your your manhood and your, you know, <laughs> studliness here. Um, <clears throat> how does this feel? Do you like this? Hugs. <laughs> it's a little awkward. I mean, a little awkward, yes. It's a little awkward, but not bad. Um, how would you feel if you tried to walk around with this kind of, like, weight oh, on no. you? No. Not, not so much? Wouldn't work, right? Uh-uh. Wouldn't work. Yeah. <clears throat> the word depression means uh, to press down. You're holding an additional 225 pounds. <laughs> I've been working out, bro. That's a lie. I haven't been working out for months. I haven't either. Your breath is pleasant. <laughs> the word depression comes from the Latin for press down, which is what it feels like to be depressed. It's to feel like you have to walk around with this kind of weight on you like this all the time. Here's a basic definition. Uh, that we're going to show you, and I'm not going to preach the whole thing from here, don't worry. (laughs) Depression is a temporary emotional state characterized by exaggerated and extended feelings of hopelessness that are not consistent with reality. This is what depression feels like, to, to go through life 
with this pressed down sort of lead weight around you uh, all the time. Thanks. It's an exaggerated and extended feeling of hopelessness that is not consistent with reality. Here are a few other ways to describe it that I found online uh, that I want to share with you. Um, the first one's actually kind of funny, um, even though depression's not a funny topic. Um, <laughs> somebody said, depression is one of the many side effects of being a teenager. I don't know if you remember being a teenager, but I remember my emotions being everywhere. This is one of my favorites. It's pretty perceptive. It's got a twinge of sarcasm here, tinge of sarcasm. Depression is the common rational reaction to self-awareness. I feel like the more that I know about myself, the more I have reason to be down, you know, the more I know where I've messed up, the more I'm aware of my failures. Here's one that says, when the world is one giant inside joke that you're not a part of, that's what it feels like to be isolated and depressed. This person says, at first it makes you feel human because of the sort of intensity, the ferocity, uh, the authenticity of the emotion involved. Then it says, but every day becomes another reason to never want to wake up. This one's my favorite. It says this. With depression, everyone around you is breathing easily. And so you sit alone, gasping for air. No one bothers to check on you, because why would you? There's air all around. Meanwhile, you're choking and gasping, watching everyone else around you, breathing easily. Friends, depression's a real problem. It's a real issue. Uh, and it doesn't do any good for us to act like it's not. Statistically, at any given time, 10% of the American population struggles with depression. There are various studies out there, but something like 10% of the population at a given time struggle with long-term clinical depression. We'll define that a little more in a bit here. One out of every 10 of those who are clinically depressed commit suicide. This isn't pretend. This is a real issue that gets at the insides that is rough and it's difficult for many people. We're going to define again here a little bit um, the four D's of the dumps, we're calling them. The four D's of the dumps. So that you can kind of understand where you are in this. And, and, and you'll notice that as we go further down to numbers three and four, it becomes progressively worse. The first D is just to be downcast. <laughs> this is uh, an immediately circumstantial kind of feeling. Something happens and you might say, I'm having a bad day. To be downcast is those circumstances being the defining reason, and and those circumstances may change, and when they do change, uh, I'm okay, I'm back to normal. Downcast is a bad day or a few bad days. The second D is discouragement. Discouragement is when that sort of pressed down feeling lingers, and it becomes more like a pattern of thinking. It becomes a pattern of thinking, even beyond the immediate circumstances. In other words, when the circumstances change, We stay discouraged. That's a bad week that can turn into bad weeks uh, or even a bad month or two. That's discouragement. Uh, The third one is depression. And we're going to spend a little more time on this one. This is when an ingrained pattern of thinking 
becomes something that's prolonged. You don't know what's wrong. You can't shake it. The patterns of thinking have become behavioral. Bad days become, weeks become months, many months. Uh, Most of the time, clinical depression is defined somewhere around six months of this kind of feeling. I'm just going to list these these kinds of emotions and feelings that are characterized by depression here in bullet point form. You can take notes if you want to. I'll I'll say them real quick here once. Uh, Depression is feelings of hopelessness or worthlessness or emptiness. Uh, Depression is not wanting to get out of bed for a few days that actually are weeks that can become months. Not wanting to get out of bed day after day. Depression is not being able to handle normal life. Feeling like you just can't handle the normal circumstances of life. Uh, depression is a difficulty uh, concentrating or remembering details. Uh, it's a loss of interest in activities or hobbies that you once found fulfilling or enjoyable. You've lost interest. Um, it's too much or too little of eating or sleeping. There are definitely physiological things involved in all this, and it Uh, shows itself in those kinds of ways. Uh, It is persistent physical aches or pains or headaches. And it's lack of motivation. Now, I know that of those eight or so that I just listed, 75% of us out there are thinking, (laughs) that's me every day. I bet some some of you all felt that way. I, I did when I went through that list. I know a number of those are me every day, but we're talking about a number of those things, quite a few of those things lasting for not just a day or two or a week, but for many months at a time, four, five, six plus months at a time. Uh, By the end of today, some of you may go away thinking, I'm depressed and I didn't even know it. (laughs) True story. I've said that to people. I've said that to many people. Sounds to me like you're depressed and you have been for a long time and you're afraid to say it out loud. Because then you're saying, I feel like a failure. Friends, that's where a lot of people are. Some of them don't even know it. If you get to that place in this third D or this fourth one of despair we'll talk about in just a second, do not walk through this alone, friends. Talk to someone, a trusted friend, a life group leader, um, somebody around you. Um, The fourth one that I just mentioned there is despair. Uh, This is where depression becomes a pattern of thinking that you can't get out of. Everything is wrong and it's never going to change. Everything is wrong. It's never going to change. Despair is what leads people to do desperate things. If this is you, do not hesitate to talk to someone around you. Friends, when, when one out of every ten clinically depressed persons commits suicide, this is real stuff. Serious stuff that we're talking about. And here's the thing. <laughs> Depression can happen to anyone. Depression can happen to anyone. Many years, there was a young Midwestern lawyer. Uh, there was a young Midwestern lawyer who suffered from such deep depression uh, that his friends thought it would be safe 
that he'd be safer if they took all his sharp objects away, knives, razors, that sort of thing, kept them out of reach, took them away. He questioned his life's calling. He questioned uh, the wisdom of even t- continuing to attempt to follow through on all those vocational goals that he's had in lives. In, in the middle of his depression, uh, when he was at its worst, when he, it was at its worst, he wrote this. He said this, I am now the most miserable man living. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I predict I shall not. This young Midwestern lawyer uh, eventually got some help, got some encouragement. Uh, The achievements of his life vindicate his bouts with depression. He went on to political office. He became one of the most uh, loved presidents that we've ever had. This was Abraham Lincoln. It can happen to anyone. Friends, depression can affect anybody. And it even happened in the Bible to one of the greatest and the most important figures in all the Bible. After Moses, this guy we're going to talk about today was the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament. God had used this guy's guy's life in amazing ways. He was part of 16 miracles, the biggest and the coolest of which we're going to look at today. At the end of his life, he was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. In the New Testament, we studied this a few months ago, along with Peter, James, and John, and Moses, he stood with the inner circle of Jesus uh, and, and, the, the, uh, and Moses with him. He stood on the mountain to testify that Jesus was the Messiah. This is a guy who had done amazing work for the Lord. He was the second most important prophet in all the Old Testament after Moses, Elijah, one of the most important dudes in the whole Bible. And he was depressed. And before we jump into the scriptures, it's important to know that Elijah had a hard job. To help set the scene here, Elijah was a prophet. He was a mouthpiece for the Lord. And Elijah spoke for God during a time when the wicked king Ahab and his wife, you've probably heard this name before, Jezebel. When King Ahab and Jezebel were leading the people of God astray in ways that had hardly been seen in the history of the people of Israel. God's people had been led by them into idolatry, into pagan worship. They were worshiping an idol named Baal, B-A-A-L. Things were at a low point in the history of Israel. Depravity and perversity were rampant. I mean, it was, it was really bad. Lots of unmentionable things that we will leave unmentioned. And so it's into that context that God sends Elijah to challenge Ahab and the pagan prophets of Baal to a showdown at Mount Carmel that is the coolest miracle Elijah had been a part of, right in front of the people of the pagan prophets of Baal and the people of God. It was a showdown right there on the mountain. And in 1 Kings 18.21, right before where we'll pick up in verse 22, Elijah stood before the people, the pagan prophets of Baal on one side, the people of God on the other side, and he shouted, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? He said, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And you know what the people did? Silence. How more clear could the issues be? And the people did not say a word. That's how bad it had gotten. And that's the context of the showdown. Pick it up at 18.22. 1 Kings 18, verse 22. A lot of cool stuff to learn about depression from Elijah's life. It says this, verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, 
I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. That's not quite true, actually. We'll come back to that later. Verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, prophets of Baal, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people agreed to this. They answered, it says, it is well spoken. So they agreed to the terms of the challenge. Keep reading. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And so they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And then he says this, this is hilarious. At noon, after hours of them dancing and, and trying to, to elicit the response of their God, Baal, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Maybe he doesn't hear you. Either maybe he's musing, maybe he's thinking to himself, or maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's on a vacation. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So they cried aloud, cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed up uh, out upon them. And at noonday, at, as midday passed, verse 29, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation for there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So Elijah, he calls the people close. And they huddle in to watch. And he takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of God's people. And he built an altar with a trench all the way around the ground, laid a bull on the wood, and said, fill four jars of water. These are probably pretty big jars of water. And pour it on the burnt offering and the wood. So they poured it all over everything. And then he said, do it a second time. So they poured all over everything. And then he said, do it a third time. So they poured all over everything. Everything soaked. Filled the trench all the way around with water. And at that moment, verse 36, pick it up again. Elijah looked to heaven and he prayed aloud. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a way of saying the God who has been faithful and will continue to be faithful throughout generations. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word, at your leading. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then verse 38, boom, in a flash, the fire fire of the Lord fell and consumed, not just set it on fire, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. Nothing was left. And when the people saw this, verse 39, they fell on their faces, an act of worship, an act of repentance. They realized what they had done. Verse 39, it says, they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Can you imagine that scene? I mean, what an awesome miracle he got to be a part of. I mean, that is, that is a victory that's on the order of Hoosiers, Rocky, and remember the Titans all in one. I mean, Elijah got to be a part of that. 
he would forever be enshrined as one of the greatest prophets of, of all of the people of God. Because he was used at a moment in history when they were enslaved to pagan idols, living perverse and decadent lives. He was used to show that Yahweh alone is God. <laughs> so how in the world could Elijah, such a spiritually powerful dude, who'd seen God work in amazing ways, how could he be depressed? How does a guy like that get too depressed? We're going to show you three easy ways to get depressed. How to get depressed in three easy steps. <laughs> you can go home and somebody asks, hey, what's your preacher talking about? How to get depressed in three easy steps. There are answers to these later on, but here are the three factors that started Elijah down a path of depression, down a spiral of depression. These are the lies that he told himself. These are the lies we tell ourselves that need to be replaced with truth. The first is this. I am alone. I am alone. And notice throughout this reading here, as we talk about these three things, how Elijah tells himself these lies, even in the midst of God's provision, even while God's grace and provision are being demonstrated. The first is I am alone. Look at first Kings 19, one to three. Start there at verse one. It says, then he was, I'm sorry, verse one. Yes. This is right after God kicked the prophets of Baal in the tail. Verse one, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also. This is Jezebel speaking to Elijah. If I do not make your life, Elijah, as the one of them by this time tomorrow. Joseph, uh, Joseph, Jezebel had put a bounty on Elijah's head. Okay. Elijah's just experienced a Hoosier's Rocky and remember the Titans moment. And then she puts a bounty on his head. And this is Elijah's response. Look at verse 3. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. There's a lot there in that one verse. Because Mount Carmel is in the north. That's where all this prophets of Baal showdown had taken place. Beersheba was as far south as you could possibly get. 120 miles away, which would have taken about five days for him to reach Beersheba. And that's going at a pretty good clip. So Elijah is freaking out and isolating himself. By the way, we get a hint of the isolation back in 1822 that we talked about earlier, where we picked up the story. When Elijah says in front of all the people, he says, I, even I only, am the last prophet left of the Lord. Unfortunately, Elijah is actually lying there. Fortunately for us, we have the rest of the story. Uh, we know this because of 1 Kings 18.3. 1 Kings 18.3, where a man named Obadiah, who works for Ahab, but is a good guy, Obadiah meets Elijah, 
When Elijah's on his way to Mount Carmel for the showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal, Obadiah meets Elijah and he says, hey, I know that, that Ahab and Jezebel are trying to kill off the prophets, so listen, Elijah, you just need to know that I've hidden 100 prophets, two sets of 50, in, in separate caves. They have bread and water. Everything's cool. They're, they're going to be okay. Don't you worry. I'm helping preserve the word of the Lord in this culture. And then Elijah says, I, even I only. <laughs> Obadiah must have been sitting there in the crowd of Mount Carmel going, uh, <laughs> hello. When you're depressed, it's easy to wallow in the emotions of isolation and to tell ourselves the lie that we are alone. We often go so far to do what Elijah did, which is to write the story <laughs> as if everyone's against us. That's easy to get to with depression. Elijah's not just telling the story as if the people around him had abandoned him. He's telling the story as if God had. He's expressing his feelings that that God had abandoned. Nobody else understands me. I am all alone in this. We isolate ourselves. Step number one in how to get depressed is to buy into the lie that you are truly alone in all this. A thought that occurred to me during a moment when I was struggling with depression. And guess what? I get to be the second video today. A moment for me that sort of struck me when I was in the middle of feeling isolated was the thought, you know what, Scott? In the 100 billion estimated people in the history of the world that have ever lived, there's got to be at least a couple people who have experienced what you have. But the lie we tell ourselves is we're the only ones who ever has. No one else. I'm alone. I don't mean to minimize feelings of depression. But, but think about our definition from earlier. Depression involves exaggerated and extended feelings of hopelessness that are not consistent with reality. <laughs> the reality is you are not truly alone. I know well this body of believers, there are Obadiahs all around us who understand the intensity of the situation and the stakes of the matter and who are on the same team. The first lie we tell ourselves is that we are alone. The second is that God has not provided what I need. The second is that God has not provided what I need. Look at 1 Kings 19, 3 through 8 there. It says this starting at verse 3. Then he was afraid, he rose and ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey, another day's journey into the wilderness. So he comes to Beersheba, who leaves the servant behind, goes off a day's journey by himself, which is weird, keep reading, and came and sat down under a broom tree. Now this alone is grace. I mean, he's in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, and he finds some shade. But he is so sour he doesn't even notice this as grace from God. This broom tree thing here is the writer of 1 Kings giving a hint at Elijah's rejection of God's provision. Keep reading verse 4. He asked that he might die. Elijah talking to God saying, It is enough. I've had it. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's like, just let me die now. 
It's important to note here that when Jezebel puts a bounty on Elijah's head, that's part of Elijah interpreting this as the end of his ministry. He saw that as God taking away the blessing on his ministry, and so he has come to the wilderness to die, which is why he leaves his servant behind in verse 3. So he has now come to the wilderness to die, assuming that God will not continue to sustain him through this attack from Jezebel, through the continued ministry that God has for him, which is a bit of a lack of faith in God's provision. But keep reading. Notice again, the grace of God just keeps coming. Verse 5, he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Listen, when you're coming off a great victory like that, a whole bunch of intense spiritual warfare, the rest of sleep is the grace of God. And behold, the provision keeps coming. Verse 6, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. Provision of God and food and rest. And an angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights to Oreb, the mount of God. Here is all the grace and the provision that Elijah needed. But Elijah had assumed that God would not provide. Listen, when you're depressed, an angel can come and bring you a whole package of Oreos. And your first thought is, where's the milk? That's where you get it. God has not provided what I need. (laughs) That means we learn to misinterpret the world around us as never quite enough. Provision is available. We just refuse to see it. (laughs) The second lie we tell ourselves is that God has not provided all we need. The third is that everything is broken and doomed. (laughs) Everything is broken and doomed. This is about focusing on the negative all the time. This is that doomsday, all day, every day kind of person who rarely sees anything good in the circumstances around them. You know anybody like that? No, don't do this thing. Just look straight ahead. I've been there many times. I'm really good at seeing how things don't work right. I've gone around saying everything is broken and doomed a lot pretty skilled at it. Look at 1 Kings 19, 9 through 10 there, and then verse 14. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, notice God's still talking to him. (laughs) What are you doing here, Elijah? God says, like, what are you doing here? Hello. Listen to Elijah's response, verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He's practically accusing God here. I've been active for your glory, Lord, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I, here it is again, the same refrain, I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God must be sitting here listening to Elijah going, are you serious? (laughs) Rolling his eyes thinking, do you not know? Of course he knows. Elijah, you were just a part of me leading you to bring the people into this recognition. I mean, did you, did you hear them say, the Lord, he is God? Did you miss that part, Elijah? I mean, if I'm, if I'm God, hearing Elijah grouse like this, my response would be, listen, Elijah, 
I've got this. You can relax because I am just fine managing the universe. You cannot. So please stop acting as if you can. Let me handle the God part, okay? Friends, Elijah believed three lies. One, that he was all alone. Two, that God's provision wasn't enough. And three, that everything (laughs) was doomed. The text tells us, if you put together the pieces, that he he was depressed for at least two months. Have you ever been to that place? You ever been to that place for a prolonged period of time that you would call that stage three depression or despair for? Uh, maybe you've experienced that kind of depression, uh, maybe for months on end. Um, I have. I fight depression a lot. I have for many years. I've spoken about this a couple times in this setting. Um, over the years, the truth is, I've been fighting depression personally uh, for many years, um, <laughs> which is why I get to be the next video. Um, I went for a good two to three years, two and a half to three years probably, with just this sort of empty um, zombie feeling. Um, <laughs> on the outside, uh, I kept up the facade. I mean, you're a pastor, for your goodness sakes. Um, But on the inside, I was an empty zombie for about three years. My name is Scott, and this is my story. I have been to clinical depression um, a couple times, brought on by a number of factors. uh, But I think I would characterize most of it... um, by saying, as a pastor who has a pretty um, unhealthy dose of people-pleasing and perfectionism, um, I am a good candidate to become a typical (laughs) depressed um, pastor. Um, There are a lot of them out there. Um, I I take on too much... um, which in Christian world looks like uh, it appears to be, you know, a godly thing, um, but it can actually be quite um, unhealthy. So for me in ministry, there were about um, five years of relational conflict that just never seemed to let up. Um, I was working overtime to please everybody. Um, 80 hours a week, not taking a day off, um, not taking all my vacation, not resting, um, always finding something to do, uh, always taking the laptop home. um, And it just just never stopped. There are other factors, of course, but ministry for me was the perfect storm. Um, That clinical depression is where I got to twice. Um, I was beyond exhausted. I didn't sleep well. Here's how I knew the first time uh, that I was uh, really depressed. Um, We had this thing with my kids. Um, At the time we had two, now we have three. But at the time we had this thing with our first two kids that we called giving dad gas. And it was, you know, dad comes home, um, 
my wife Dagny would say, um, Daddy's home. Um, I'd say, give me some gas, give me some gas. And they would, uh, they would run up and they'd give me a hug and they would fill my tank. That's what we talked about with giving gas. And uh, I knew that I was depressed when um, um, a couple years into feeling like I was just walking around like this zombie, um, my two kids came up and giving me gas. Um, I, I mean, I just remember feeling something is really wrong with me um, because it doesn't, that doesn't even work. So the hardest part of all that, the hardest part of my struggle was allowing myself to sort of call it a valid struggle in the first place. Um, that was one of the, the, the key pieces. Another part of it for me was learning to be really vigilant, um, almost militaristic, um, about keeping margin in my life for self-care, for um, Sabbath. There is tremendous power in sharing uh, your burdens with one another. Uh, one of my favorite verses is uh, Galatians 6.2 where it says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the law of Christ um, that Paul talks about there is love. His law is love. So when you are bearing one another's burdens... Uh, you're communicating that love of Christ to another person. Um, and unless you share that with somebody, they can't bear that burden with you, which means not sharing. Um, it's holding at bay the love of Christ that's available to you. So, um, the, you know, the answer to to having help and overcome the struggle is, um, in part, it's let someone else bear the burden with you. I'm now not ashamed to talk about having struggled with depression, uh, even as a pastor. I used to hesitate to tell people because, you know, there were times where people would respond certain ways, oh, because you're a pastor. Um, and I would fear that it would damage sort of their conception of me or this congregation. Now I don't really care what they think of me. Uh, I don't really care what they think of this congregation uh, because I know that um, God does great work here. And um, I also don't care what people think of me because I know that sharing my uh, personal brokenness will bring them face to face with those kinds of issues for themselves and, and might be an, an entree into uh, how God meets them in their brokenness. Um, to tell the right story is to tell the story um, of the brokenness, not just that we once dealt with but that we continue to deal with um, and we don't do anybody um, any good when we um, when we talk as if um, I've brought myself out of that um, or I don't struggle with that anymore so um, I, I've been been open um, about talking about depression as a real issue because um, because honestly, many people struggle with it, uh, I think, to a greater degree than I do. Uh, but I just hope that it helps to tell the story of how God has worked in my life despite the struggle of being depressed, uh, which has been going on for me for years.
shirt was not planned for the record. <coughs> Got this for Father's Day. and I think this is the third time I've worn it. <coughs> we just looked at three lies that Elijah believed. I am alone. God has not provided what I need. And everything is broken and doomed. Uh, Friends, we have a God who clearly answers all three of the lies that we tell ourselves with truth. It's not just in principle form. God undoes our lies with a person. In Jesus, we have an answer to all three. We say to ourselves, I am alone, but really God is present. God is present in Jesus, John 1, 14 and 16 and 18. If you're following along, we'll put this on screen for you now. John 1, 14, 16 and 18. The Word became flesh. The presence of God was among us in Jesus. We're not alone. God is present. He did not leave us to our own devices. Briefly, the second one that we tell ourselves, the second lie we tell ourselves that is answered in Jesus is that God has not provided what I need. Actually, God has provided all we will ever need. First Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That great exchange of Jesus' perfect life for us means that he has provided everything we will ever need. The truth of the matter, according to Scripture, is that when your sins are forgiven in Jesus, everything else you have is just gravy, friends. Gravy. If you've got Jesus, you've got all you've ever going, you're ever going to need. The third lie we tell ourselves is everything is broken and doomed. John 14, 1-6, super cool passage. This is Jesus reassuring his disciples that everything's going to be okay when they feel like it's not going to be. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do that, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. He says this. I love this part. You know the way to where I am going. You know the way to where I am going. Friends, Jesus himself is the deliverance and the freedom and the redemption. It is the good news that the coming of the kingdom of Jesus is what gives us the freedom. So though life can be a struggle, though depression can be real, though that struggle might be ongoing, The reality out of which we are called to live is that in Jesus, God is always present. We have everything we will always need and that we are going to spend eternity with him. That's a reason for hope, even when it feels hopeless, friends. If you're in that place of depression or despair, do not hesitate to bear your burdens with the body of Christ around you. We want to be a place where that's a safe conversation to have. Where we uh, shepherd the trust of your soul well so that you can know that there's someone to talk to, to share that burden with you. Let's pray together, friends.
Lord, we're grateful for the truth that in Jesus we have everything we need. That we're not alone and that you will take us to be with him forever. Lord, give us the strength and the courage to continue to live increasingly from that truth. That what you've done in Jesus for us on the cross is enough to make up for all of our sin for all time. We love you for that truth, Lord. Help us to live out of that. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We want to ask you to respond to the gospel we just talked about.